If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. We all know the story of the Norman Conquest, when Duke William of Normandy led his troops across the Channel, defeated King Harold and seized the crown of England. However, there's a lot more to say about the Normans than that. Professor Judith Green has written a new book on the subject, The Normans, Power, Conquest and Culture in 11th Century Europe. And our content director, David Musgrove, spoke to her to find out more. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Professor Judith Green, whose new book, The Normans, Power, Conquest and Culture in 11th Century Europe, has just been published by Yale University Press. Judith, thank you very much for joining us. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Good. Good. Right. To quote from the intro to your book, uh, this book is concerned chiefly with the Normans' explosive rise to power their establishment in Normandy and their 11th century conquests. So most listeners of the podcast will probably have heard of the Norman Conquest, but they might not be too confident on this question of the explosive rise to power or indeed the 11th century conquests 
beyond England. So I wonder to kick us off before we dive deeper, if you could give us a very brief intro and a bit a bit around that sentence. And I guess we'd need to start with the with their appearance as a recognised group to to kick things off. When when do people first start talking about Normans? Well, they start talking about the Normans in the 10th century because the Duchy of Normandy, as it became, as we know it, um, originated with a group of Vikings um, led by a man called Rue or Rollo, who was granted land uh, in the Seine Valley at the start of the 10th century. And he, they and their descendants fought off others in because it was a very complicated era in politics. And a strong, cohesive duchy had emerged by around the year 1000. And it was also around that time that you begin to find Normans in Italy and in the Byzantine Empire in Eastern Europe. And it's the speed of that. And also, given the complicated nature of politics in northern France, the fact that Normandy hung together, it didn't split into smaller units. It was a very powerful principality. Okay, so we'll talk about the Italian uh, aspects of this in a little bit, but let's just go back to, to Normandy. So uh, 911 is a is an important year in this story, isn't it? What happens in the year 911? Charles the Simple grants land to the Viking leader Rollo, uh, Rue, he's called in France. And this is the first and most the lasting of the Norman principalities, of the Viking principalities, apart from the Northern and the Western Isles in Scotland. So that is the date that's always celebrated in Normandy as the foundation of Normandy. In fact, Rollo had been around for years before then, but 9-11 is the date. And there was uh, there were there were some good uh, anniversary celebrations on the on the last big anniversary of that in Normandy, as I recall. I wonder what um, can you tell us anything about what was happening in Normandy prior to to the early tenth century? What who who was living there? What do we know about those people? Well, these are the Carolingian Franks, and they had been part of Charlemagne's empire, and gradually over time. Uh, Charlemagne's legacy divided into the West Franks, from whom came the Kingdom of France, and the East Franks, from whom who came the Germans and the Kingdom of Germany. So it's that tussle between different power groups in of Carolingian nobles uh, and their allies, and the Viking, uh, the Normans made a strategic decision to ally with the people who became the Capetian kings of France, and that helped them to stabilise their position in the 10th century. But they're jockeying between Bretons, other Viking groups, um, Franks, and the, and the mass of the population are Frankish. So, okay, so in the start of the 10th century, were there a lot of um, Viking settlers living in what is now Normandy, or were they settled there as a result of this 9-11 moment? Nobody really knows. Uh, when you look at place names, which is one of the few sources of evidence we have, you can see that there are uh, Vikings strongly settled in what we think of as Upper Normandy, uh, towards the border nowadays with Belgium, um, and groups elsewhere. And in the west of Normandy, around Cherbourg, for example, there are other groups of Vikings who probably came from the Irish Sea and were Norse Irish rather than Danish. Um, the Normans' own master narrative thinks of them as descended from Danes, but clearly there are other groups around. But the problem is for historians is that 
they left very few marks on on the uh, archaeology. So that whereas in in the Dane law in England, you've got lots of Viking remains and Viking burials and lots of Viking coins, you don't in Normandy. So you're piecing together what happened from basically place names and what the Normans themselves told about their own past. So I was going to ask that. So um, is is Normandy in any way an equivalent to, to the English Dane law? The English Dane law was where um, Scandinavian settlers came and, and established a, a territory of sorts. Um, is, is the same sort of thing going on in Normandy um, vis-a-vis the Franks? We assume so, but the current thinking is that there were so few of them in Normandy that they soon assimilated with the Frankish population, and that's why we don't have any physical remains. The other complication is that whereas in in the British Isles, quite a lot has been done on Viking DNA, my understanding is that's not allowed in France. So people can't just dig up Viking sites and test the bones to find out where these people came from. I may be wrong about that. Um, This is a few years ago. Oh, that's that's interesting. I wasn't aware of that at all. Uh, we, we'll have to we'll have to look into Find that. Out. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, what can you tell us about how far um, these people uh, in Normandy uh, from the early 10th century um, embraced an independent identity? What I'm wondering is, did they try to distance themselves from their Scandinavian heritage, or were they trying to uh, to embrace it? A bit of both. I think in the early years, you get this sense of they're interested in Viking past, but then their own historians want to show how they became Christian. And because the writers are writing from a clerical perspective, that to them is more important. So they present the the Viking leaders, the Norman leaders, as Christians and then doing the right things Christian rulers should do, founding monasteries, being kind to the clergy, etc., etc., so you get a turning away from the, the Viking past uh, by the early 11th century, I think. So it hasn't taken very long for them then, that's no. a, a century no. to sort of move in, yeah. into, into quite a different characterisation. Yeah, which is, why, which is why the current thinking is there can't have been terribly many of them. And... Okay, so uh, and what about the relationship between the, these Normans, the Norman settlers, if and, and as you say, maybe there weren't very many of them, and the Franks, the people who were who were around them and uh, and living to the to the east of them as well. We assume that they get on quite well, um, that they uh, become Christians and and then they embrace, as it were, Christian ideology and they intermarry, it is thought, with the Franks. And then they're, as it were, indistinguishable, except for their Christian names, where you get Turston, Rollo, Rolf, uh, all of that sort of thing. Um, but also there were immigrants from other parts of France because uh, the famous family in Italy, um, the, the, the father figure there, Tancred, has a Germanic name. So there were Germans, there were Bretons, and of course, in the west of Normandy, which um, was heavily settled from Scandinavia, well, by Scandinavians, these are Norse Irish, they're not, they're not uh, Danes from Denmark. But all of these terms are problematic, because of course, Denmark, Norway, Sweden don't technically exist, uh, or they're only coming into being in this era. So there's a lot we don't know. Now, I realise I'm asking you the same question in, in various different ways, but uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying to understand how far the, the Normans sort of saw themselves as distinct from the peoples around them. Can, can you say anything about that? 
Yeah, they they wrote they commissioned providential history. They are chosen by God and they are God's chosen warriors. And this is the earliest version of the Norman story, but it becomes the master narrative. And they believe they are descendant from they're given a, a, a Christian heritage, as it were, and a classical heritage, because that's the other thing that new peoples like to do in the Middle Ages to show you're def- descendant from Troy. And uh, they they suggest they're descendant from a companion of Aeneas. And, um, and then they sort of fetch up in Dacia, which the Roman province of Dacia is, in fact, isn't it Romania or Bulgaria? It's not Denmark, but they think it's Denmark. And so they are thrown out of Denmark because there isn't enough land for them. And they come uh, west to, to the Kingdom of France and establish themselves there. So all of this story is projected on, onto the idea of heroic leadership and battling against the odds for survival under these terrific leaders. And I suppose one of the motives of writing the book was, was the feeling that for too long, historians have tended to believe the Normans' view of themselves. Ah, right. Okay. Well, let's get into that. So, you, so um, this this providential history idea is very interesting. So, at what point do the Normans start start this this process of writing their history, the, the myth making? Who's who's the most important figure in the early in the early process? He's a chap called Dudo, and he's not a doorman at all. He's based at Saint-Quentin, and he's writing, uh, as he says, for Duke Richard I of the Normans, who is the late 10th century duke, and he lives on into the reign of Duke Richard II. And from him, the story is taken up by a monk from a Norman monastery, William of Jumierge, and he takes the story down to William the Conqueror in 1066, and that those two historians basically established the narrative of the Normans in Normandy and how terrific they were. And could you very briefly outline that narrative? Could you summarise what it is that they're they're saying? Arrive in, in northern France, um, terrific warriors, get given land, become Christian, marry into Carolingian families, uh, fight off... Um, not altogether successfully because the second Norman leader um, was in fact murdered by one of his enemies, but they survive and they uh, establish near enough what we think of as the historic frontiers of Normandy by the year 1000. And they ally with the Capetians and they also ally with the Danes. So um, Swain and Canute can sell all their ill-gotten gains when they're attacking England in Norman ports. So they're very wealthy, the Normans. So that's the story in a nutshell. And would you would you say that the early Normans invested more time and energy than other contemporaries in sort of actively having their ri- histories written up to support the, 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 the narratives they wish to put forward? Yes, indeed, they are. They are very uh, quick off the mark. Really, an object lesson in how to make sure your version of history gets accepted. But earlier than the Bretons and the Angevins and even the Capetians, uh, uh, slightly later. So it is early. Do you have any sense about what? Why? What drove that? Why did they? Why did they choose to do that? Was it because they were looking to establish themselves in this new territory? Was that the main? The yeah, main... I think so. Legitimation, and and you 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 can't just sort of take land. You have to legitimise your conquest. And the Normans are to find that elsewhere as well, in Italy or in England or in in Antioch. Um, it's a good idea to commission the people who write history. 
And I suppose one of the greatest uh, documents legitimising conquest would be the Bayer Tapestry legitimising the, the, the Norman conquest of 1066. So is that part of this Norman myth-making narrative, yes. narrative, do you think? It is absolutely the case. There's loads and loads. There's a whole historiography of, of that piece of work because it is so remarkable. And people point out that it seems to be telling the story as the Normans would like it, then they say, ah, yes, but the spellings are English um, and it was presumably uh, made in England and the stories along the bottom and the top borders in some cases undercut the master narrative there. Some of them are from Aesop's fables. So, So it's very sophisticated, but yes, it tells the Norman story and why William the Conqueror believed he had the right to become king of England. And you mentioned earlier that you think that uh, historians have, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm putting words into your mouth so you can disagree with me, that historians have basically been taken in by this Norman narrative and have been uh, been too, given too much credence to it. Is, was, that, was, that, was that what you said? I think so. If you look, uh, I'm very interested in 19th and early 20th century depictions of the Normans, but the heroic statuary of William the Conqueror, um, the statues put up of Rollo all around the world, including one in Wisconsin, I found, um, uh, they're always in heroic poses. And uh, even down to the late 20th century, uh, if you read a book on the Normans, it was very much a success story. You, you didn't hear so much about the fact that the Normans didn't unite southern Italy or that uh, it took time to conquer England and it was incomplete and this sort of thing. And there was also a tendency to assume that you could talk about the Normans in Ireland, for example, whereas nowadays people would argue that they weren't Norman at all by the late 12th century. So um, it's it's partly, I think, the disconnect between what's gone on in the scholarly world and general books on the Normans, which tend to be, uh, you know, it's all knights and battles and success and heroes. People like heroes. William the Conqueror, there's a a series called Heroes of the Nation in the late Victorian period, and there is William the Conqueror. And I was thinking, hero of the English nation? I mean, he was the one who battered them, for heaven's sake. Um, uh, But there he is. There's there's some interesting historiography going on there, certainly. Um, I I wonder, just we talked about 1066 a little bit, does, does the conquest of England markedly change society or the nature of society in Normandy? That's a question, it's an excellent question, and it's not been addressed enough, I think, because my feeling is it did affect Normandy, um, not for the better. I think Normandy saw a drain of its young men, and um, the church in Normandy was enriched by lands in England. It got revenues, but um, it sent a lot of monks to England because the Archbishop of Canterbury, Archbishop Landfrank and King William wanted sound men in English monasteries because the monasteries were so wealthy in England. So they stripped some of the big Norman monasteries of monks and, and left them in a difficult situation. So no, and I think That is one of the reasons, I think, that the Norman master narrative never gets beyond 1087 and the death of William the Conqueror because it wasn't actually good news in the long term for Normandy 
And Normandy's fate gets caught up in the fate of the sons of William the Conqueror and then the Angevins and finally gets taken over by the kings of France. So I think it's a very good question and much more work has been done on England than on Normandy as far as the effects are concerned. Now, you've, you've mentioned earlier, and we have this idea, I think, uh, that the Normans were somehow this race of exceptional warriors. And, and I'm sure that is in part because that's what they said uh, they were. Um, so what's your take? Is there any truth in that? Were they in any way militarily better than those around them? I think it's a bit like saying is Liverpool Football Club the best football team in the world? That um, at one level, yes, the Normans are exceptional warriors and they they succeed and they're absolutely ruthless. But I think the point I'm trying to make in the book is that they don't have a secret weapon. Um, It used to be thought maybe their horses were special, but I don't think they were particularly special. Um, The techniques weren't special and a lot of their greatest successes were in sieges rather than on the battlefield because pitch battles are very rare. And um, people like Robert Giscard, who who was the foundational figure in Italy, um, he had to learn on the job. He didn't know about sieges before he got to Italy. And, uh, you know, so it's not rocket science, basically, warfare. You have to be very, very tough and skilled. But there was no reason why Flemings or Bretons or whoever shouldn't have been as good as Normans. So I don't think you can look at their successes, explain their successes from that point of view. Did they, as a society, did they invest more time in martial matters, in in, in training, in, in, in the development of knights? I think all of these societies did. It's what you did. If you had able sons, you could put them into the church, but that cost you as well. Um, So young men who didn't want to go into the church, and they would always be a majority, would be trained in arms. And then you had to find some way of getting land and establishing your own household. Um, So many of them emigrate. And of course, they emigrate from other parts of France as well. And Chris Wickham had a very interesting point a few years ago. He said that what's different about the 11th century is that these young men are having to go further than they had to go in the 9th or the 10th century, where there were more wars and more paymasters closer to hand. But by the 11th century, they're having to go to Italy or to Greece or Byzantium um, to find employers. But there's still plenty of wars around. And you have you have a good bit in the, in the book where you talk about the, these young men and and uh, and how they have to travel around. Um, and you and you talk a little bit about uh, the the question of whether they became mercenaries or not. Um, and 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 you know Normans did become mercenaries, didn't they? They did pitch up as mercenaries elsewhere in Europe. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, they would fight for whoever paid them. Essentially, you you fought in the hope that at some point you would be given land or take land for yourselves. And that's how the Normans got established um, in Turkey, for example, under the Byzantine emperors. And and then you can uh, dig in and begin to establish yourselves. So there's nothing, it's quite a modern idea that being a mercenary is is not a good thing because these, these are soldiers of fortune. They will fight for whoever pays them. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They are lucky commanders and it's charisma. And I think charisma is a very interesting um, historical subject. And these men had it in spades. You read about Beaumont, Antioch or Tancred. Um, Men will follow them to their deaths and, you know, they had what it took.
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Okay, so we've mentioned Italy a couple of times uh, here, and I think that, that this, that's an area where perhaps our listeners won't be as familiar. So we've, we've talked, obviously, most people know what happened. 1066, William the Conqueror uh, beats Harold and, and becomes King of England. Everyone knows that. Um, but what about Italy? They became established in Italy as well. How did that happen? What's the, what's the rough timeline of that? The timeline starts actually 50 years before 1066. The timeline starts around the the, the first millennium and there are Normans around in Italy. Some groups are pilgrims, others are mercenaries. The politics of Italy in the centre and the south is very complicated, but because you have the Byzantines uh, on the one hand still established in the south, the Greek Empire still holds southeast Italy, um, the Muslims hold Sicily, and then there are Lombard principalities, um, places like Naples and Capua. They were descended from Frankish uh, Lombard groups. So there are opportunities. Because it's divided, there are opportunities. And the Normans, again, fight for whoever will pay them. They fight for the Greeks, they fight against the Greeks, they fight for Lombards. And eventually, uh, one group is given a toehold in land, Naples. And from that, they begin to expand. But the Comments of contemporaries, the chroniclers and the popes are horrified at the banditry and the way they enslave people, the way they will do anything to get land. 
So it's not a heroic story. And they don't end by unifying South Italy. Again, that was an old idea that they create a united Italy of the South. But actually, that's a long, long story that doesn't end till the 12th century. So they're really fighting their way amongst these different interest groups. And um, enough of them get land to start establishing themselves as a serious contender for power. So, so, so was there a Norman kingdom in Italy in the same way that there was a Norman kingdom in England? In 1130, it was recognised that the then ruler, Roger II, was king. The title was granted by actually an anti-pope, as it were, but that was his basis to authority. So it's quite late. And even then, he's Roger II is fighting against you know, people who don't accept that he should be king over all of them. So that's a different situation from England, where you'd had a kingdom already and the Normans took it over. Ah, yeah. So that's that's the nub there, isn't it? So he, there, there was an established role. So was Roger II sort of actively touting himself as a Norman? Not particularly. Um, that's the interesting thing, that in Italy, the, he came from the Hauteville family, who came from near Coutances in western Normandy. But... Um, there were so few of them that, that the Norman heritage didn't mean all that much. Um, the churches that were built by under their rule, for example, which are very tangible um, relics of their authority, um, don't look particularly Norman. There's one famous exception, but most of them actually look more like South Italian churches. Can we can we talk about that just a second in terms of Norman building? Because that is one thing that Normans are known for, building of churches and for a particular form of architecture and indeed of building castles. Can you can you speak to, 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 to that a little bit for us? Yes. Well, certainly as far as church is concerned, it's one of the interesting things because the churches still remain by and large. Um, there have been earthquakes in South Italy, so some of them have been damaged. But other than that, you can see that there wasn't a sort of Norman imperial architecture. It's not like the British in India and the Raj and putting up these buildings at all. So um, you do get amazing church buildings in England because they are so spectacularly large, but they are not replicas of Norman churches in Normandy, bar Westminster Abbey, which had been started before 1066. Um, in Italy, there's only one church, the church it's that time of year, St. Nicholas of Bari, um, which looks like a Norman church. The rest don't look like Norman churches at all. Um, as far as castles are concerned, again, there are far, far more castles built in, in the British Isles than are built uh, elsewhere under the Normans. And they do make a profound impact on the landscape. Nothing, But there was nothing of the scale of the White Tower, the Tower of London, or Colchester Keep. Um, so the Normans, when they're in England, are doing things that they're not doing to the same scale or artistic and architectural uh, ideas as they are in Normandy. In Italy, there are Byzantine towers anyway, which the Normans can take over. And a lot of those Norman castles in Italy, which you see if you go on holiday, they're terrific. Um, do go to Norman Italy. It's a wonderful, it makes a wonderful holiday. Um, but a lot of them are remodeled in the 12th and 13th century. So what you see often is not a Norman 
castle, as it were. But there, they're working in a society which is used to castles anyway. And again, in the Near East, there were Byzantine and um, Turkish fortifications already at the time of the First Crusade. So, in terms of of Britain, the the, the the sort of the nature of the building is is kind of it, it is typified by its monumentalism, by its massive. Yeah. They build yeah. really big, don't they? But and that doesn't follow through into into Italy. Is that what you're saying? No, it's not, that's, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And in Italy, um, there are other churches which have a much more profound influence. Um, Old St. Peter's at Rome, uh, the form of that, uh, which is found also at Monte Cassino and then uh, found in other churches in the south. They're not looking to Normandy for their examples of architecture. Right. So let's just drill into the into the geopolitics a bit more. So uh, early 12th century, you've got the Normans in Normandy. They've been established there for a while. You've got a, a kingdom in England, which is which is being run by by Normans, uh, a link between the two areas. But 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 obviously some some disputes between between sons. And then you've got Normans also established now in southern Italy. Where else are they and, and do they spread out from there? And perhaps that leads us into mentioning the, their role in the Crusades. Yes, certainly. The, uh, by the late 11th century, they're moving across the Mediterranean. Um, Roger, the great count, uh, the brother of Robert Giscard, takes Malta and Gozo. And in the 12th century, Roger the king takes footholds in North Africa, um, which gives him a lucrative point of entry into not just the gold trade, but also slave trade. Um, But at the end of the 11th century, you get two Norman contingents joining the First Crusade, one from Normandy itself, led by the Duke, Robert, the eldest son of William the Conqueror, and the other uh, led by Bermond, who was one of the Norman lords of South Italy. And uh, the two make a terrific contribution to the First Crusade. I mean, like it or not, and there are obviously views about about the justification for the First Crusade, but they make a, a great contribution to it. It was the only crusade, as it were, which worked, was successful. So the Normans were, would you say, it's fair to say they were key players in that First Crusade? Absolutely, absolutely. Duke Robert, the eldest son of the William the Conqueror, is the one nicknamed Curthose by his father, Bobby Socks or Short Legs. Um, and he's run down consistently in Norman, the Norman master narrative. Um, but he was one of the great commanders of the First Crusade. And ironically, he was probably the one who transmitted Norman values. At one of the early sieges in the First Crusade, they were still in, in uh, Turkey at that point, there was a battle called Dorilam, and Duke Robert lifted his helmet and shouted, Normandy, Normandy, and the Normans flocked to him. And Beaumont um, is even more glamorous figure who was Lord of Taranto and the South Italian Normans. He was the one who got them into the castle of Antioch, which is the great set piece of, of the First Crusade. So does that mean that when the Crusader kingdoms became established, that the that they um, that were any of them essentially Norman kingdoms, or is that taking it too far? No, um, it, the the Norman principality was Antioch, which is today Antarctica. In it's actually in the border of um, it's in Turkey, and the boundaries of the Norman principality uh, took in North Syria and and Turkey. 
And that was held by Tancred, who uh, followed on from uh, Beaumont, who actually got captured uh, and and then went back to Italy to try and get more forces for the crusade, but but died. So the, the, the endeavour was taken over by Tancred, who is another of these sort of heroic figures, um, who was actually terrific in the sense that it was he who established quite an extensive boundary for the Principality of Antioch. They never got as far as Aleppo, which was a, probably a big mistake, but he, he, he was quite something as a warrior. Tancred. So um, given that the, the Normans played a pivotal role in, in the First Crusade, does that mean, and, and presumably they were honoured and praised for that around, around Europe as, as, as great martial heroes, um, you mentioned earlier that there was concern as the Normans established and moved around uh, about what they were what they were about and, and I think maybe their rapaciousness. Um, what was the general attitude uh, in more established Christian kingdoms to these to these Normans? Because obviously the Normans, as you as we've talked about, they were descendants of, of Vikings, and the Vikings, you know, from the 9th, tenth century were were very much feared and, and worried about because of the of the damage they were inflicting onto onto the uh, existing population. So what? So how did views change to, towards the Normans as the period progressed? Um, it was partly due to the way they presented themselves and the Norman historiography, um, but. Really, there wasn't much option. If you were living in conquered England, you had to come to terms with the Normans. And you can get a sense from the monastic chroniclers, who were often Englishmen in Norman in, in, in monasteries in England, that they hated the Normans. And there are comments like you couldn't get a job, a top job in the Norman church in England, because as soon as they found out you were English, that was it. Um, so the so it, it isn't that they were sort of welcomed with open arms. And I think 1066, it's been shown, had had quite a profound impression on contemporaries. They, they, this was a Christian kingdom, and lots of Christians had been killed in that battle. So it took time, but by the 12th century, um, the Normans in England they were accepted. This is this is what it is, and the same, I suppose, for the Normans in Italy. Um, the Normans in Antioch were always having to fight, and in that sense, they get subsumed into the bigger politics of the different Crusader principalities, and they came under the Kingdom of Jerusalem after a while. So it didn't stay Norman all that long, um, but they. What I, th- I think once you're in power. And you've legitimised yourself. The Normans in Italy are a prime example of that. They're bandits to start with. The popes call them bandits, but the popes need them in the end. And by the later 11th century, the popes and the Normans are allies fighting against other enemies. Um, And then eventually, as I say, one of them recognises Roger as the second as a king of a new kingdom. You've, you've talked a little bit there about the relationship between uh, Normans and church and popes. Um, perhaps we could just drill into that a little bit more. So the, Norm- the Normans were uh, enthusiastic, I think it would be fair to say, um, supporters of monasticism. They, they developed a lot of uh, monasteries, particularly in Normandy and, and England, as we talked about. Um, would you say, w- were they particular advocates for the church? And what was the church attitude towards them? Because I think the papacy did support William's invasion in 1066, yes. didn't it? 
Yes, yes, it did. And I think that's a question of timing, that the, there is a reform movement in the 11th century church. And as part of that, the popes were trying to establish themselves as the head of the Western church, um, rather than just as the bishops of Rome. So it was very convenient from the point of view of the Normans. They can back the reform papacy and say, yes, well, we may be conquering people, but we're we're doing it for the right ends. And we'll, we'll reform the church. And William the Conqueror promises that, that the English church will be reformed. What they mean by reform, of course, is, is not what necessarily we would think of by reform. And the other thing you can do is you can give your ill-gotten gains to monastic houses, which is where praise, prayers will be said to um, save you from the pains of hell, which they all knew they were coming to as warriors. They had done all these terrible things. But if you give money to monasteries, the monks will pray for your souls and hopefully you, you will evade the pains of hell. So there is a very, very strong link between what the Normans were doing and, of course, on the crusade. The crusade is launched as an armed pilgrimage to rescue Jerusalem. So, again, that's a very good pious motive, apart from being a jolly good adventurer if you're a young male. Now, shooting off on a bit of a tangent before we before we uh, wrap up, there's, there's one thing which uh, I think... Um, people talk about in terms of the Normans, particularly in England, is their attitude to slavery and this sense that perhaps the Normans were, uh, were sort of ended uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon slavery. They were kind of, they, they were anti-slavery and, and sort of fought against it. Is that, is there any truth in that, in that line? I think it's a very interesting problem, and it's actually what I'm working on at the moment, because there's no doubt we have Doomsday Book, which is a marvellous um, uh detailed record of the population and lots of slaves. And we know that uh, the authorities are preaching against enslaving Christians to Vikings or whoever. So you're not supposed to sell people into slavery anymore. Um, but they disappear. And the usual view is that they're settled on the land and they become unfree peasants, as it were. But I'm not, I, I think that's too simple. It's certainly nothing to do with what the Normans viewed about slavery and unfreedom. Uh, and it, in Italy, where the slave trade continues, they're banging on it. I mean, they have slaves, they sell slaves. Um, domestic slavery carries on um, in 13th, 14th, 15th century Italy. So I think it's a very interesting story there. So the simple answer is that there are slaves in Doomsday Book, and then there are no slaves in the 12th century. So what happens to them? An unsolved problem, I think but nothing okay. to do with the Normans. Okay. Sounds like it might be a question of semantics as much as anything else then in terms yeah. of, of how you yeah. define what a slave is. Yeah. Um, right. Just a, a couple more ones before we wrap up. There's, there's a nice quote uh, that I picked up. was the two features of Norman society that were distinctive were the Scandinavian ancestry of its rulers and its political cohesion. Um, now, that leads me on to a question, which is, was there such a thing as a single Norman world? Were these disparate groups, did they see themselves as one sort of Norman empire at any point? Only in battle rhetoric, when you're standing there on the battlefield and somebody, uh, well, these invented speeches, I'm sure commanders never have the time to make these big speeches, but you say, remember what your ancestors did at Hastings, remember what they did in Italy, remember what they did at Antioch, and you rehearse the great, the great stories. But in terms of 
did they say, ah, my second cousin is in Apulia. I might go down there and see see what I can find. Um, it's, it's not like a modern diaspora at all. I think in certain limited ways, yes, there, there's a consciousness of a wider Norman world. But when you look at the different theatres that they're involved in and the societies they're moving in, they are so different that no, um, you can't. And they you can't see them going backwards and forwards and some kind of commonwealth of Normans. I'm just going to drop another quote uh, on you. The central argument of this book is that behind the legends about the Normans, their success is owed much to timing and to their leaders. So can you tell us a little bit about the the good timing that they enjoyed and perhaps uh, the, the, the effectiveness of some of their leaders? Yeah, I, I think the timing question is pretty crucial that what you have in England is a country that's been conquered by Danes, a king who has no direct heir. And the Normans knew that if they didn't invade, somebody else was going to, it was going to be Flemings or uh, the Norse king, Harold Hardrada. So that was why William the Conqueror uh, was lucky in his timing. And he was also sufficiently in control in Normandy that he could do this. It was still risky, but he could do it. In Italy, the Normans faced a, a, a very weak and fragmented political society. There were lots of opportunities. And the same can be said in the Near East as well, that you have the Byzantine Empire in the north fighting the Seljuk Turks, but also uh, the Arabs in Egypt, and it's another frontier zone. So for all those reasons, there are opportunities to do with timing. The question of leaders, I came to very reluctantly because I started out thinking, oh, who believes in heroes anymore? Um, But the bottom line is that these were exceptional men who we don't hear enough about their failures William the Conqueror goes through some sticky moments, Robert Guiscard does, but they they fight they and they earn the respect of the people who follow them. They are lucky commanders. And it's charisma. And I think charisma is a very interesting um, historical subject. And these men had it in spades. You read about Beaumont at Antioch or Tancred. Um, men will follow them to their deaths. And, you know, they had what it took. And we've, I've just realised we've had this whole conversation and we it's um, forgive me for saying it's been quite a masculine conversation. We've not really talked about women at all. Was was normal society a very masculine society? Its values, but were masculine, but they were as all warrior societies at this point. But what you soon find is that their women are crucial to their success, particularly in the building blocks of of power, that your wives are the people you can trust. They bring their lands to you. Um, You can leave them in control of your castles. They will fight for you because of their children. Um, So yes, they are crucial. And sometimes we get William uh, women warriors, but we also get women castellans and we get women crusaders. And that's been a feature of recent research, has been uncovering some of these stories. Okay, just uh, a last couple then. So um, when, obviously, Normandy, the, the name remains and people still talk about the Normans who live in Normandy, but more more widely than that, when does the idea of people being Normans uh, start to fade away? I don't think it does. I think uh, Normandy today is still looks two ways. Um, it looks to its Norman heritage and quite pithy about 
Paris, as it were. So Normandy retains under the French its its separate assemblies, its separate customary law. Um, there is a strong sense of regionality. And the Channel Islands, of course, are still ruled directly by the Queen as Duke of Normandy. So there are relics still there today. Okay, and finally, um, if I uh, forced you to pick a key moment or two in the Norman story and you can't have 1066, uh, what, what would you go for? I would go for the break into Antioch in 1098. And uh, it's, it's, it's going to make a wonderful movie out there, all you movie makers, because there you have um, Bohemond at the foot of the uh, the foot of the tower, and his uh, ally inside, who has betrayed um, and allowed people to to break over the wall. And Bohemond um, doesn't climb the wall first; he stands at the bottom. And there is his ally saying, "Where is Bohemond? Where is the mighty Bohemond?" And Bohemond finally realizes that he's jolly well going to have to be pretty well in the front line to to break in. And they do break in, and they capture the city, which has is it a hundred towers? I mean, it's a huge fortified city. So that would be the moment I would choose. Brilliant, and I would watch that film. Let's uh, <laughs> let's let's make that happen. Uh, Judith, <laughs> Professor Judith Green, um, thank you very much for your time and your book, The Normans: Power, Conquest, and Culture in Eleventh Century Europe, is published now from Yale University Press. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Judith Green. A version of this interview appears in the March issue of BBC History magazine, and that's on sale now. And you can also find much more on the Normans on our website at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.